Okay, Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. He rose the next, early the next morning, and he squeezed the fleece, and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill the bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on all the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give, you, to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And for anyone whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So we brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his own tent. But he retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9, the same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold... A cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian, and the camp 
a bread of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, there is no, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19. So Gideon and the, one, and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the armies fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerera as the, uh, for the border of Abel Morah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim came out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And then they pursued Midian, and they brought back the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and the promises, the truth, and wisdom it provides us. God, we confess that we are often like Gideon. Our faith is weak, and we fail to trust in your calling for us. We ask you for signs or confirmation of our calling because we doubt who you really are. And instead, we give control to the fears or idols that are in our hearts. Yet you, Lord, you remain faithful to us. You continue to pursue us and draw us deeper into a relationship with you. Through our faith and your power, mighty works will be done in your kingdom like we see in Gideon's victory over the Midianites, all so that your name would be glorified. Lord, would you strengthen our faith and help us to learn from these stories by giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen, and thank you very much for reading. Uh, man, it's such a joy to read that much scripture together. I do pray and hope that you're able to follow along uh, in, your own, in your own Bible, ultimately. All right, so here we are, right? We are continuing on in Judges which we have subtitled False Gods. And ultimately, what we're finding out is that God that, that God that we so love to worship and honor along the way isn't really Baal, isn't really Astra itself, right? I mean, all along, Gideon is here. He's worshiping himself. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But all along, we have Israel ultimately putting themselves at the forefront 
of who they are really worshiping in their lives. And it may not be explicit, but it's certainly and subtly there all along the way. Last week, if you'll remember, we talked about the call of Gideon, that God was, was calling him, that he was commissioning him, and that he was going to do some things out of conviction. And you start to see the false gods fall, even in the house of Israel, starting with the backyard of Gideon's father, where he goes and breaks down altars uh, to the false gods and builds up an altar to the only true God. And one big takeaway that we had last week that I want to reiterate today because I think it's a good segue from last week to this week is this. We talked about this. God will call you to do things that you cannot do with resources that you do not have for the rest of your life. And isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? He's going to call you to do things you cannot do with resources that you do not have for as long as you both shall live. Um, Ultimately, this is really, it's a great truth, but it really makes us pause. Do we want that? Do we want to live that kind of life? Do we want to live the kind of life that's wholly dependent on God? Or have we set up our lives in such a way that we might be able to manage it with our own power and manage it with our own resources and do things that we only can really see to be successful at the end of it? I'm not sure we really want the life that God is calling us to, and I think Gideon kind of fleshes that out for us. At some point, though, everyone who has been used or wants to be used by God to do anything for him and his kingdom, Gideon will show us, has to be broken. You have to be broken in order to be used for the kind of life that God is calling you to live. In order to live that life, to do things that you can't do with resources that you don't have, you have to be broken of being satisfied of the life that we can create on our own power with our own resources. See, at some point, you're going to get to the point uh, of life here in the suburbs, and, and just like my friend years ago sat down with me over lunch, and he, successful businessman, entrepreneur, uh, I mean, just really a beautiful life that he'd set up, and as his kids were leaving the nest, he had lunch with me, and he goes, so I've done all this, I've made more money than I ever thought I could, I've only got this much education, but God has been so gracious to me, and, but is this it? Is this all that there is to life? And of course, me being the ever-encouraging one said, yeah, this is all that life has to offer you. It's empty. If this is all we're up to is doing what the culture, the American dream tells us that we're setting up to live for. Yeah, this is it. It's not going to fill you. It's nice. It helps along the way, but it's not our ultimate purpose. There's something more that we have to be broken for. We have to be broken of trying to make life work, of trying to make God do what we want him to do, and to release the control that we want over him. We want control over our creator, and I'll give you proof. There was an article that was sent out this week that of LifeWay Research that said 76% of U.S. Protestant churchgoers believe that God wants you to be prosperous. Y'all, 76%, that's up from like 68% last year. 76% of us in this room, if that statistic holds, means 
ultimately, that most of us really do believe that God is here for me. I'm not here for him. That he's going to give some return on my investment here. Me too. I, I believe in the same lie on occasion. But it is, a, it is, number one, that it's not true. God does not want you ultimately to be financially prosperous. He will break you of all things if they're getting in the way of your love for him. If we are following him. It's not true. But number two, it's a symptom, right? I just said it, but God does not exist for us. We exist for him. It is a remaking of God in our image as if he needs that from us. But if we are to be a people who don't just know God but love him, we must again become broken. And friends, there is no shortcut around this. Probably my favorite author on the planet, um, well, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but his name is Larry Crabb. He says this about brokenness in one of his books. Brokenness is realizing he is all we have. You want to know what brokenness is? Realizing that God is all we have. Hope is realizing he is all we need. And joy is realizing he is all we want. Are we broken people? Gideon will beckon us to remind ourselves that the path to being used by God is one of a crucible, one of a furnace one where we must be broken for him in order to be used by him. As Gideon goes to battle against the Midianites, uh, the first thing that he'll ultimately show us is that a call for us to be broken because for Gideon, he was not yet humble. He was insecure, but he was not yet humbled, and I don't know that he actually ever gets there in this story or even in next week's story. But God must humble all of us, and he will humble our hero here in order to use him. And he does so in the most unusual and impractical way to remind us that God's ways truly are not our ways. They are higher, they are better, and they're more glorious. So how does he do this for Gideon, much less how is he leading us into a pathway of brokenness? And the first thing that he will do for all of us, whether we want to or not, is he is going to stir up our doubts. He's going to stir up our doubts. He stirs up the doubts of Gideon, and he will stir up our doubts as well. You can see it, and the first thing that really happens here is that for the first time in the book of Judges, do we see the Spirit of God at work in a very unique way, in that he clothes Gideon. Now, for all of us New Testament believers, we're looking back on that and go, oh, well, that's going to mean that Gideon becomes this really morally virtuous person. Because that's what we would expect when the Spirit of God comes on somebody. Ultimately, he, he does some things to them. He clothes them. And when he, when he does that, ultimately, he makes them a more virtuous person. Someone who, who ultimately looks and breathes and, and, and loves and lives a lot more like Jesus. But for the Old Testament, that is not always the case. Instead, when the Old Testament, when the Spirit clothes someone, it just means that they are, he is empowering them to do something that they previously could not do. And for Gideon, the fearful one, the hiding one in the wine press that we saw last week, the thing that he's going to empower him to do is to recruit an army of 32,000 soldiers ready to go up against, well, Judges 8, 10 will tell us that the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east have amassed an army of 135,000 troops. 
and for Gideon, it's doing pretty good. By God's grace and by the Spirit's working in his life to have amassed 32,000 Israelites to go up against such a crazy army. But I'm just going to say this, not just for Gideon, but also for us. There's also this part of, of Gideon and the Spirit's moving in him that it also helps stir up some doubt in him. That Yeah, I've got these, this army and these troops now, but there's also still some doubt in me that clearly could be com- uh, as a result of God's Spirit moving in him that he's got to deal with. He can't go into that, that battle still dealing with these doubts. He's got to have the, deal, the doubts dealt with by God. And so it's no wonder then that he goes to God and he says, look, I understand I got all these troops now and I know you've called me to take down the Midianites. Actually, I know that you have said that the victory is going to be ours, but I got to tell you, I just have some doubts about this. I've got this fleece here, Lord, and if you don't mind, could you, could you make it wet? And, and if you would just, after you've done that once and your magic trip, trick is over, my doubts still are not here, if you could flip it and reverse it and then be able to just make everything else wet except for the fleece itself. And all, by the way, if you could just not kill me on the way, that would be great. And I want you to just see God's character. We don't know why Gideon asked for this. There's a lot of people that will try to read the motives of Gideon, and can I say there's a danger in trying to read the motives of another person, especially if it's not given in the scriptures? Like, we don't know if he was questioning God's character, all right? Well, if you say you're going to give me, you know, the army, then, then surely this little fleece is no problem for you. We don't know if that's his thing. We don't know if he's testing whether or not he heard it right. Like, Lord, I I heard you say that you were going to give me this crazy army into my hands, but did I hear you right? We don't know the motive, but we do know this. And I want you to hear God's gracious response to our doubts. He answers them. I don't know what doubts you have, but God is gracious enough to hear them. You remember this guy named Doubting Thomas? Well, I'll never believe in the resurrected Jesus until I put my finger into his wounds. And what does Jesus do? How dare you, Thomas? You've been with me for three-something years. No, 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 no. The gentleness of our Savior on our way to breaking us will invite us. Get all of your questions answered. Gideon, you need to get this fleece worked out. Come, put it out. I'll help you out. And I don't know what your doubts are, but can I just say, I have been sitting down with probably more people than I have in a long time, just sitting with with leaders and, and new people to our church, and we are experiencing doubt. Collectively, it is amidst us. And can I say that you are in a beautiful place to be able to get those doubts answered? to get your questions answered about the character of God, about whether or not you've heard him correctly. And so can I just invite you to be a part of that neighborhood group that you're in, but don't just pretend along the way. Take advantage of the time and voice your concern. Hey, I got questions about Old Testament God versus New Testament God. Oh, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's work that out because what you'll find over time is that God is gracious, as gracious as he is in the old, as he is in the new. You just got to read it right. You just got to see the right things. Or maybe there's some other doubts that you may have, right, that ultimately you think maybe, like, I have an issue with creation. 
I have an issue with the biblical account of creation and that evolution has creeped into your thought process. Come with those doubts, but also be ready. Be ready to hear the answer. Be ready to hear the answer that God himself has declared in his word, because this is where it's all going to come from. In this place with these leaders, this is how they're trained to quell our doubts, by picking up God's word and saying, well, I don't know. Let's go to God's word about that. Don't know what your curiosities are or your doubts are. Maybe it's creation. Well, friends, you could go to Psalm 19. You could also go to, to Isaiah 48 that says this. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I love this. I love this. And, and like the generation uh, that's come before, that's, that's like, you know, my kids' age, they all talk about like, I am him. I'm him. No, no. God is him. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. You want to know how it happened? Because God spoke it and he laid it out by his hands and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. God is in control of all that he created for indeed he did create it. Maybe it's not evolution or creation. Maybe it's suffering. Perhaps you have core doubts that are fueled by illness or suffering at the hands of others, or maybe the unknown troubles you and you are therefore anxious. Colossians 1 calls out to us, the answer is right there in God's word, for by him all things were created. See, that's why evolution is, is really against the creation account, not just because you may believe it happened in six days, but because it's in God's hands that he created all things, not by chance, but by design. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, that's right, Gideon, and for him. They're not created for you. They're created for Jesus. And he goes on to say, and he is before all things, that's Jesus, and in him all things hold together. You want, you want the answer to get beyond your suffering or your anxiety? God holds all things together. Surely if he holds the whole world in his hand, he holds your world in his hands. So all the what ifs are held in Jesus' hands, his wise, good, providential hands. And it's all created for him. We can rest assured that he's designed it, he's created it, and he's holding it and sustaining it. Perhaps it's not creation or suffering. Perhaps there's some sin in your life that's causing some doubt in you. Well, first, quit, quit sinning. That's what Jesus says. Like, I, I come across those that maybe don't believe in the biblical idea of marriage or sexuality, and they go, well, what do you think Jesus would say to them? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus would say to them, quit sinning and follow me. That's what he said to the adulterous woman, someone who had basically created their own identity out of their own sexual preferences. Quit sinning and follow me. Perhaps it's sin. I can, I can tell you this, you cannot out-sin the grace of God. Abraham tells us that. I mean, Moses was a murderer. I named my son after a murderer. What have you named your son after? David? Oh, he was a murderer and an adulterer. <laughs> or how about Peter, who denied the Lord? Right? All of God's people throughout the scriptures are flawed and broken. And what Gideon is going to show you is there is only one white hat in the Bible. And it's Jesus. It's actually a crown. 
So it's no wonder that Jesus, the one who wears the crown, would say this in John 10, my sheep, they hear my voice. And when he says, quit sinning and follow me, he means it. And I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, friends, no one, not even you and your sin, me and my sin, or my arrogance, or my pride, or my entitlement, or my self-reliance, can pull me out of the, the strong grip of our Savior. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Friends, we have assurance in the scriptures. Whatever doubts you have, come. Bring them. Ask them. Don't pretend they're not there because they're there and God sees them in your heart. So you might as well just make it available so that you can deal with it just like Gideon had to deal with it. See, God wants to break us and the first thing he's got to break us of is like, oh, well, I'm just going to pretend like I don't really doubt. I don't know of one person I don't know of one person that has come to know Jesus or walked with Jesus for very long that hasn't struggled with bouts of doubt. Not one. Even Jesus at the end of his life isn't doubting the goodness of his God, or is he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are in good company. We are in good company. So let's not approach God in cynicism. Let us approach God with some honest doubtful questions that say, Lord, I don't know. Can you help me? He will answer us. He is gracious to have done it all throughout his scriptures. He will do it in our life as well. That's the first thing he's going to do to kind of get us on the path of brokenness. He's going to stir up these doubts by his spirit's presence as is evidenced in Gideon. Second thing, he is going to strip away self-confidence. Oh, that's exciting. Let's follow Jesus, and he'll strip away our self-confidence. That's not what you hear. You hear he's going to make your life better. And you know how he does it? <laughs> By calling you to come and follow him and pick up a cross daily so that you will deal with your pride, your self-confidence, our arrogance, See, though Gideon starts to, with testing of the Lord, the Lord says, okay, well, now we're done with that. I now am going to test you and all of Israel. And he turns the table on Gideon for good reason. And when he does that, Gideon has gathered these 32,000 troops from the Abiezrites. How did you say that? That was amazing. I don't know where you are, but that was a great uh, translation that I can't say. Abiezrites, um, he, he, he gathers the, all the troops of Manasseh and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali to face off against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and those from the east. And after all the recruiting, all the calls out to all these different tribes. He's got 32,000 men, and God intentionally diminishes Gideon's army from 32,000 down to 10,000, down to 300. This is the original hot gates right here of the 300 men who will stand against a vast army of 135,000 people. That is a 1 to 450 ratio, if you were wondering. If you've ever served in the military, I have not. That's not good odds. Some commentaries will tell you that uh, God was uh, really just kind of showing off his military strategy here. He's getting, away, getting rid of all the fearful people. That's what he first does. He goes, hey, all those that are afraid, they need to go on home. So 22,000 leave. 
And then he says, all right, now I need you to go down to the brook, to the river. And those that like just go down to the river and suck the water out of the river, not paying attention to their surroundings, you don't want them either. You need the guys that are going to be on one knee and be looking at their surroundings to be able to lap the water from their hand. Those are the guys that you want, Gideon, because they're ready for military action. I don't think that's actually what's happening. We don't really know. Again, we can't read too much if the, if the scriptures aren't telling us what's going on. But I think, in actuality, this isn't about God showing off his military strategy or wisdom. This is about God using weak things to show his strength. He's, he's weaning off all of their strength. And the reason why I know that is because Gideon approaches God back in verse uh, 35, excuse me, 37 of chapter 6. Like, I, I need to be able to know what's going on here because I think that you said that, that I'm going to save Israel by my hand. And that's actually not what's going to happen. See, verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, the people... The Lord said to Gideon, the peoples with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see what God's chiefly concerned about in our lives? That we would not be a people that would have anything to boast over. And you would say, well, clearly 32,000 against 135,000 is not too many to be boasting. And yet God sees it and he says, yeah, that's too many. I'm going to need you to make this look like basically impossible without my intervention. And that's God's ultimate way he does things again and again and again through scripture. Abraham and Sarah, 99 and 90 before she gets pregnant so that you can know the only way this happened is because of an act of God. It seems to happen all through the New Testament, too, with the Virgin Mary. She is a virgin. Like, how in the world, unless God intervenes in a miraculous way? And so it is here in this, that God is ultimately concerned about what we do with our lives. Will we build it up in our own strength, or will we allow it to get stripped away so that he can intervene and we can go to God, be the glory in all things? Why would God tear down Gideon's army? Because he knows there is no point in saving Israel from the Midianite hands if they're just going to fall into the hands of pride and boasting. It's not the false gods of Baal, it's the false gods of self. And it happens not just in our circumstances, but also in our salvation. Right? Kyle alluded to this verse earlier. He didn't know, but there it is. The Lord is working, right? That it is by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Baptism doesn't do it. Tithing doesn't do it. Attendance doesn't do it. Like prayers, don't do it. Coming up at the end of a gathering, don't do it. Nothing that you can do will actually turn God's favor towards you. It is by grace. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see it? He will strip you away of self-confidence in all things, especially salvation. And he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not created and saved by good works. We are created and saved for good works. 
which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So because we all have a tendency to boast, it's not a, this isn't a question of like, um, if you are boasting, I'm going to assume that you are, because I am. Because it's the human condition. So friends, where are you boasting? Where are you self-reliant? Where are you figuring life out? Over what are you losing sleep? These are good indicators that God is breaking you of your old way to produce and instead, he is acting in a way to cause you to rely on him. The best seminary assignment I was ever given um, was in a spiritual formation group. It was beautiful and right and good. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. Um, and that seminary assignment was, um, if, uh, if you could, uh, write yourself your own screw tape letter. And if you don't know what the screw tape letters are, you should go and listen to it or read it. It's by C.S. Lewis called the, the Screw Tape Letters. It is ultimately this account, a fictional account, of a senior demon writing to a junior demon on how to tempt Christians. How will you get them to fall away from their devotion to Jesus? And so really, it's a question of like, how do you really feel like if the enemy is going to take you out, what would he do to do it? It's a beautiful assignment, number one, because it, it's just really good to think about. But number two, for people that are going into ministry, you might want to be aware of the hole in the wall that you've really created and helped maintain to be able to stand against the enemy. You know what mine was? I'll tell you. Self-reliance. Because every other sin flows out of relying on me. Everything else you see this in all the lives of those in the scriptures that ultimately they start to drift long before they deny. And that drift starts by relying on yourself. You see, God is ultimately interested in weaning us off of ourselves. And you can see it all throughout the rest of the scripture, all throughout the rest of this passage, verses 16 through 22. If I had time, I would read it again, but we don't. But ultimately it's this. Gideon and his troops do nothing they don't even have a sword in their hand, and God gives them the victory. They have a trumpet and a torch. Have you ever heard of anyone going to war with a trumpet and a torch? I mean, we, we like high school football here, but the band members are usually not the ones that are attributed to the victory that goes on on the field, and yet that is exactly what's happening with Gideon. It is not the, the, the football players, the troops on the field, because there aren't any on the field for them. Instead, they're all around, they're blowing their trumpet, they got a torch in their hand, and they're saying something actually a little bit blasphemous. And God answers anyways. For the Lord, and for Gideon? Oh, okay. Our Lord and Gideon, we'll do it. What he said to do. But God intervenes, and he is gracious to do so. God wants us to boast, friends, in nothing besides Christ and him crucified. Gideon's salvation over his enemies was a gift from God, friends, and so is yours. Your salvation over sin, death, and the devil, and your sustained victory, and I will say this, your sustained victory, I don't care what kind of week you just had, because he has delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness, and he has delivered you into the kingdom of his wonderful son. So your sustained victory in life over the powers of the flesh 
being fueled by the temptations of the world, has been bought beautifully by Jesus with blood-soaked hands. And he gives it to you freely, not because you have done anything, but because he has done everything. And that is cause for great rejoicing, at least by one person. But God doesn't stop there, thank God. He doesn't just strip us away of self-confidence. He also then strengthens us. See, our hero of Gideon in this story doesn't repent of boasting. Never once is he like, oh, okay, God, I got it now. I'm sorry for doubting you. He doesn't repent of boasting, and he doesn't become fully broken, but God does his work of using Gideon anyways. Gideon wanted to win the war by my own hand. He even then again tells everybody, for the Lord and for Gideon, and God still delivers them. Do you hear God's grace? Do you hear God's mercy in this story that you don't have to do it perfect? We just do it flawed. We do it like sinning. And yet God continues to answer us and be like, yeah, I know you messed that up. But you really gave good effort. I, I appreciate it. God meets Gideon where he is and he graciously ministers to him. I will read this because I think it's really beautiful. Look at verses 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, now arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Oh, beautiful. This is finally happening. But if you're afraid, and I know you are, go down to the camp, bring your servant along, and you shall hear what they say. And after that, your hands will be strengthened to go against the camp. And when he went down, what did he see? He saw 135,000 troops that he describes ultimately as sand on the seashore, right? I mean, there's so many troops there, he gets, starts to get terrified. He's like, you wanted me to get it closer to this, to be able to see all this? It's the opposite of encouragement, but he says, don't go down and look. Go down and listen. And listen to the story that they're telling in the camp. And he listens in at one providential story, this dream that clearly God had put in somebody's heart, his enemies, that says, hey, look, I don't know what this is about, but I had this crazy dream. This loaf of barley comes rolling through the camp, and it flattens the tent. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly terrified of loaves of bread. Like if I'm, I'm getting ready for war, a loaf of bread rolling through the camp and flattening a tent doesn't immediately make me go, got to be Gideon. Got to be Gideon. He's going to win and we're going to lose. But that's exactly what he heard. That's exactly what God had given his enemies the night before when he's still doubting with the whole fleece thing. God's answering Gideon and giving dreams and doubt to his enemies. What a beautiful thing that God is up to. He's, he's, he's answering us even in the midst of imperfection, even in the midst of doubt, and it's just really beautiful. God takes lowly things. That's what we can understand. He takes lowly things. He takes weak things, and he uses them to show his strength. It's why in the book of Hebrews, and I think this passage is going to come up on the screen in the NIV because I think it's really well said in the NIV. You know, Gideon is mentioned in the hall of faith 
And I think it's really beautiful the way it's said, because the writer of Hebrews says, and what more shall we say, in verse 32? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. Oh, and Barak. Oh, I got some more context for that now. And Samson, he's coming. And Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, well, that's not talking about Gideon, gained what was promised, still not Gideon, who shut the mouths of lions, that would be Daniel, quenched the fury of flames, again Daniel, escaped the edge of the sword, maybe Gideon, oh, here's Gideon, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Is your story weakness turned to strength? Or is it strength turned into kind of a little bit stronger? It's got to be weakness turned to strength. God will use your strengths, there's no doubt about it, but he's more interested in where you are weak so that he can be made known as strong through you. He wants to use your weakness, your, your lowly parts of your personality, parts of your story, parts of your personality that you'd rather not showcase. And that's where he's going to work the most. I'll tell you one little quick story. Read a passage of scripture and then we're done. Uh, my first um, job in ministry was at a church that was of another um, culture. And I had so many hopes for that job. Like so many hopes. I was going to be a missionary in my own city. I was going to be able to like go do cross-cultural ministry within my own city. I was going to be able to lead and teach young people as a youth and kids pastor and it was going to be right and beautiful and finally someone gave me a chance baby and they were willing to pay me $28,000 a year and I was happy to accept it. Because it wasn't the pay that was holding us back. It was this cultural difference. And we thought, man, that cultural difference, difference cannot be what keeps us from taking this job. Let's go. Let's be about it. So my wife and I didn't have kids yet. We went about it. We went about it. And I thought, this is going to be awesome. We're going we're to take over this whole place. It's going to be great. And two weeks in, things went real south, real fast. The pastor that hired me retired. I didn't know he was going to retire. If I had known he was going to retire, we might have maybe had a little bit of a change of heart. The guy he brings in has a completely different vision. I sit down with him and I share with him our vision for this student ministry. It's all about just leading people to follow Jesus. And his answer was, perhaps you misunderstand why you're here. Oh, maybe I do. I thought I had the Bible, but no, I don't. There was vastly different understanding of what that looked like. And ultimately, they wanted me to kind of teach them English. They didn't want me to teach them the Bible, and I just, well, that's not what, well, not what I'm here for. I help, but I'm not here. I'm not an ESL teacher. I, I'm here to, like, help pastor them. We'll help along the way, but that's not the ultimate reason why I'm here. And over time, before too long, we discovered there was abuse amidst our youth. We reported that abuse, and we were told to be quiet. My pay went from the vast amount of 28K to 20 overnight. That was our last sign that it was time to go. And so we left. It was heart-wrenching. It was brutal. It was disorienting. I took a break from church. Couldn't do it. Couldn't go. It was like, I cannot 
I had, was on the process of deconstruction in some ways. But God met us in our desert place. He used that weak experience to break me down of arrogance and pride, to cultivate in me, to do hard things like church planting. I don't think I could have done without that. And that ultimately, it was formed in a crucible, in a fiery furnace. But it was through weakness. It was through failure. It was through difficulty. It wasn't through success. And I remember talking to one of my mentors at the time, and I was like, this is all wrong. Help me sort this out. And he said to me, there's not one person in ministry that I know that's ever done anything for the Lord that doesn't have to go through this. So welcome in. You want to be in ministry? This is the pathway. And I extend the same invitation to you in following Jesus. Though it is not glorious, you will have pain. You will have suffering. You will have doubts because comfort and success isn't exactly God's priority in the scriptures. They're dependence. That's his priority is for you to rely on him. I told you I was going to tell you a story and now I'm going to read you a passage. It comes right out of 2 Corinthians 1. May we leave with this as our comfort because I got to tell you, not a fun Sermon to preach, we want to leave happy. We came to church to be encouraged. And I do hope the truth encourages you that there's something more to this life than just making life work. I would have been stuck in the mud forever if it was just to make life work. But no, no. It's to strip us of our bad ideals in life so that we can find our ultimate hope and being found in him. And so this is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to make, make sense of life? You want to make sense of suffering? You want to make sense of doubt? You want to make sense of Gideon's story, of getting broken down so that he can build you up? Here it is, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, what's God doing in our affliction? Seeking ways to comfort us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Why does God comfort us in our affliction? It's not for you. It's for the next person that's dealing with the same thing you just dealt with. So don't hold it in. Don't keep it to yourself in neighborhood group. Share the, 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 the unpleasant parts of life because someone else, God declares, will be comforted with the comfort of which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, oh, we have to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, not just the blessings and the sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Seems like one must then lead to the next. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Oh, that we would see our afflictions for the sake of others. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we all suffer. Verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken. And what is that hope? For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And here it is. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We thought we were going to die. This is the Apostle Paul now talking. We thought we were going to die in Asia. It was so bad, y'all. They were coming against us so bad. They were persecuting us and stoning us, and we thought we were dead. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Our our hope is not in the comfort of making it through this life. Our hope is that even if we die, so shall we live, because our hope is in God who raises the dead. May we not then depend on ourselves. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will then deliver us again. May our hope be found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, help us. We are a people that want the certainty that comes with relying on, depending on the work of our own hands. But you will strip us away from such comforts. Just like you did with Gideon, you will strip us away of false assurances, such as the strength that we can muster up in our own lives and our own power. You will break us down. You will... Help us see that our hope is not in ourselves, but so that we might depend on you. May we find no other definition of life than life with you, dependence on you, hope in our God who raises the dead. Not in winning the battles here, but even if we win, or even if we lose, that our hope is found in you. Whatever dross is on our souls this morning, would you burn it off? That may mean we have to go through fire, but that fire has an intention and a purpose. Not to kill us, not to harm us, but to make us whole. To purify us and to make us more like you. May we walk intentionally with you, not straying away, but may we follow you even into the darkness. We will find our hope is the light of the world. Help us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.